Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 13 of Carla and Brad Talk About Kraut Rock. Lucky number 13. Back in the saddle. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There are a lot of bands jostling to not have this position. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> guru, guru, you are the winners. <laughs> ding, ding. So some announcements. Twitter handle at CB Rock. Neglected lately. Always neglected. We're sorry yeah. about that. But if you want to talk to us. But yeah, talk to us first and then we'll talk back. Yeah. Um, we've had some folks reach out to us on Facebook too. So thanks for that. Had some pretty interesting engagement. Listen, rate, review. We got another written review. We did. I don't know if it was you asking nicely or me threatening, <laughs> but <laughs> we did get another one. We did good cop, bad cop that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was so nice though. It's, Thank it's you. A, Thank you to everyone yeah. who's left us a review. It really, it really helps get the show out to many more listeners and it helps us know how we're doing. And good cop, bad cop works for a reason so it's a thing for a reason <laughs> it's a parenting style for a reason <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right so children give us five stars or it'll be the paddle for you so one thing we've neglected to mention or at least only made passing mention of over the course of our 12 episodes to date is the mixtape diaries which is actually our original podcast mm -hmm. carla and i and two others who maybe aren't as into Kraut Rock. I mean, um, we have they're a podcast. not into Kraut Rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not at all. Um, we're making a playlist together, the four of us. And so what we do is we pick a theme for each episode. We each pick three songs that fit the theme. And we talk about them. We talk about why we like them, why we chose them, what's interesting about them. And we've, I think, felt like we needed to steer clear of Kraut Rock for a while on the Mixtape Diaries. But in the last episode, we pulled the trigger and we got into it shook things up a little bit so if you want to hear us talk about things other than kraut rock check out the mixtape diaries see what you think let us know there's a little cross promotion here yeah. it was a fun episode it was specifically about robert demery's book 1001 albums you must hear before you die which there is quite a bit of kraut rock included in that book and so when one of the other guys picked that as the theme we felt like the door was wide open how could we not pick kraut rock it was thrown open. It's yeah. Just... In fact, I got into Can Annoy because of that book. So, yeah, same. Um, so, there you go. And Faust, too, I and, think I yeah. might say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they asked for it, they got it. <laughs> Check it out. You can hear me just get crushed over picking an 18 minute Can song <laughs> in part one. <laughs> that was unfair. They were, I still very much stand by that pick. Yeah, Always right and forever. So let's get to the, what have we got recently on vinyl department? Anything new, Carla? Yeah, I've gotten a few new things. So I went to my favorite record store, which I guess I'll name here, but I tend to not name it on the Mixtape Diaries because <laughs> I think more natural people listen to the Mixtape Diaries one. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but there's a great record store here called Phonolux. And I like to pop in there because they have, they have more crot rock and jazz and post-punk and stuff like that that compared to the other record stores here but i was just flipping through the stacks one friday morning and there was a vintage autobahn with the original cover and nice all of that so i was very excited about that i picked that up i also got uh bow wow wow last of the mohegans <laughs> which was just Always fun close to it was heart. like six dollars yeah. it was i couldn't pass it up 
Is that a live album or a compilation or something? I think so. I think it's a compilation. Yeah, Yeah, sounds right. And then I grabbed this other record that was a French compilation called The Girls of Paris. And I was really kind of hoping it would be like a lo-fi 60s vibe because I really love like French (laughs) lo-fi. Unfortunately, it's not that. But it was only $5. It's fine. It's more like French jazz standards. It's fine. Just not the like bubblegum pop stuff. It's, yeah, it wasn't as fun yeah. as I was hoping that it might be from the cover. But anyway, that was fun. And then for Christmas, Don got me the Duran Duran Live at Hammersmith 82 record, which is awesome. <laughs> so that's got to be like just after Rio, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that's the first two albums? The, cal- the cover is very much like in the vein of the Rio album cover. Yeah. So. It's good. Very cool. And there were actually songs on it that are definitely on Rio, but like I don't remember them from when I was a preteen listening to Duran Duran obsessively. So I was like, oh, these yeah. songs are so good. I don't even know these songs. So it was fun. It's a fun listen. That's and cool. then he got me Buddy Guy and Junior Wells' The Criteria Sessions, which was released in 2016, but it was actually recorded in October of 1970. And I have been listening to that on repeat. It's so good. So it's a good, good blues record to have. Nice. How about you? So I got for Christmas Heroes by David Bowie from my daughter. Nice. I got the Phil Spector Christmas album. Nice. Which I had asked for. And I got the Faust box set. (laughs) That was the best. (laughs) Yeah. I actually feel a little bit guilty because I know there aren't that many of those. And I wonder if I'm like worthy as a Krautrock fan to have one of the 200 and some copies of the box set. Anyway, if you're listening and you don't like that I have the box set, there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) I still need to come up with some kind of a mailer so I can get you those. I had a couple of loose Faust records that I'm now going to send to Carla. So at some point, you'll get the Faust tapes and Faust 4. Have you listened to all the other albums on the Faust box set? Yeah, there are a couple of like outtakes kind of records that I haven't listened to. Or, or unreleased, previously unreleased stuff. But I listened to Punk. I listened to So so Far, of course, the original record. There are two 45 singles that came with it, too. So, cool. Yeah, it's great. It's just what I wanted it to be. <laughs> nice. So. That's awesome. So, after Christmas, I was in Florida. I found a reissue of That Total Age by Nitzareb. I oh, yeah. saw them open for Depeche Mode like in 1991. Yeah. Maybe something like that. 1990, maybe. So I bought it and cracked it open. And then I went on Discogs and I found that a sealed copy of that is selling for $230. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I shouldn't have cracked it open. But anyway, I played it. But and I mean, I it. so that's, I don't know. I want to listen to these things. That's why I buy them. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, something to think about. <laughs> At least something for me to walk away thinking about. In that same mode, I bought a copy of Speak and Spell by Depeche Mode the other day which is the first CD I ever bought. That and the best of OMD were the first two CDs I bought when I got a CD player way back in the day. A couple of use, similar to like what you were saying about Rio, like had these records, played them a lot. Don't remember what's on them. Here's to Future Days by the Thompson Twins. Yeah. Maybe kind of doesn't hold up. I had it on cassette like in eighth grade. Once Upon a Time by Simple Minds, which we talked about in the Mixtape Diaries. Mm -hmm. And I found a copy of Alpha Centauri. There's there's a copy on sale at Newberry Comics of the a reissue of Alpha Centauri with, it has a second record, which is the Ultima Thule, if I'm saying that right, single. 
which was released around the time as Alpha Centauri. I think that's the last Tangerine Dream I'm going to buy. I feel like I'm not into it. It after really that. starts to change after that. I mean, it kind of goes in the direction that neither of us is fond of. Yeah. But that Ultima Thule single is so crazy good. Oh, I just sat down and played it. it over and over and over. Yeah. Very cool. So I've come around in part to Tangerine Dream. <laughs> I just saw the other day that I had Phaedra and I was like, what did I buy Phaedra? But I think maybe I picked, I might have gotten that in yeah, Spain. Yeah, I remember you mentioning that. I might have gotten yeah. that in Spain. I can't remember. <laughs> I was like, have I listened to it? <laughs> Needs to get into the rotation. Yeah. No, I don't mind it. It's not my favorite, but I get why it's important. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about Kraut Rock. Let's do it. More Kraut Rock. More Kraut Rock. Today was your choice. Yep. Sell it. All right. So today I picked Guru Guru. And instead of going with their first album, which we'll yeah. talk about. This was an upset. Yeah. In a, in a moment. I went with the second album, Hinton. kind of working our way through the more electronic kraut rock for a while now and i felt like we just were ready to go back to some more psychedelic stuff and so I'm cool with that. i spent the most time really listening to guru guru and the more i've listened to ufo the more i'm into it but hinton was the one that really just like grabbed me right out of the gate <laughs> with electric junk and i was like oh what is yeah. this that's why i picked it first listen through like all those songs I was really into so I'm like I'm gonna go with this one and we'll talk about UFO later <laughs> yeah that works for me yeah we were kind of stuck on the Dusseldorf tree for a while right yeah like, which was great because they all interconnect and it was it's been fun to kind of put that tree together and and see how they all interweave with one another but it was time to go back to some psychedelic yeah I'm right there with you so let's talk a little bit about this band where it came from there has been a Guru Guru for 55 years now, accounting. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. At the core of it is Mandy Newmeyer, the drummer. We talked about him in the Harmony episode, right? Because mm-hmm. he guessed it on Deluxe. Mm-hmm. The name travels with him. So as long as there is a Manny, there's Guru Guru. I think he's in his 80s now mm-hmm. and still going strong. Yeah. So for the purpose of this conversation, we're going to focus on the classic lineup, which was Manny and then Uli Trepti on bass and Axe Genrich on guitar. So those three did three LPs together, UFO, Hinton, and Conguru. Conguru. <laughs> Pun intended, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, before Trepti and Genrich went off to do other projects. So as we kept doing our research, this phase with these records, it kept coming up. They kept calling it free rock, like the next phase, I guess, of like free jazz. It's as if they were born out of that movement. How do you say that in German, Brad? Yeah, fry rock, I've seen. Yeah. I was trying to search for, I would search for free rock to try to see who else is in this category. It's the worst possible thing you can try to Google. (laughs) 
Yeah. It, just, it was geology. It was right. Few music. So I, I wasn't able to like track down like who else might have been thrown in here, but they were in this free jazz tradition in the mid sixties and they just kind of carried it over. They decided they want to play rock music. So that's really, I think the essence of it, but you see it a lot, right? When you are reading about Guru Guru, that phrase kind of mm-hmm. keeps coming up. As far as I can tell, I think the way this whole thing is structured, there's one band member. It's usually trapped on bass, laying down kind of a basic skeleton track that kind of holds it all together. And then the others just kind of improvise over it, right? So Axe Genrick does kind of a Hendrix seed thing, and Mandy, I don't know, Max Roach. I, I don't know my jazz drummers very well. <laughs> but yeah, there's like a consistent, and I think this is a theme we talk about, right? We talk about it with Noi. There's something at the heart of the song that propels it forward, keeps everything in its station, right? And then everyone just kind of weaves around it with cool sounding stuff. And sometimes it's Connie Plank turning knobs. It's these guys just jamming. Yeah, absolutely. In all the interviews that we read, I mean, they all talk about how they were influenced by Hendrix. Almost all of them have seen, got to see Hendrix live. So, you know, they were kind of a part of, of all of that movement that was happening at that time. Manny talks a lot about seeing some really classic American jazz musicians and how that really influenced his drumming style, which too is one of the really key pieces of Guru Guru is really his drumming. You know, in addition to seeing Max Roach, he was exposed to people like Art Blakely, who played with Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker, with Tony Williams, who played with Miles Davis. Elvin Jones, who played with John Coltrane. I mean, these are like major, major people that he was exposed to in his youth who were doing things unheard of in jazz at the time. Jumping to Uli Trepta, I was reading an interview. He was asked sort of what was distinctive and different about Krautrock. And here's what he said. I'm going to read a long quote, so bear with me. While the Anglo-American scene was basically formed by musicians that came from Western, folk, blues, rock and roll, and skiffle, the German originators of electric music mainly came from instrumental jazz. So being more in touch with what was happening than the surrounding states, probably due to the fact that Germany lost the war and was more exposed, connected at that time, at least to American influence and information and otherwise still being Europeans, they developed a basically instrumental electric music interspersed with voices. And were also able to give such sometimes quite long pieces of basic form. I thought it was interesting because we've been hearing a lot about how, you combine the rock with avant-garde art, right? Joseph Boys or Carlein Stockhausen. That's the ingredient that makes it crat rock. But here we're hearing more and more about jazz. So I don't know. Maybe this is the first time we've been talking about jazz as a significant influence. On I the really music. think I really think it is, and I didn't really think about it until we started doing this research. But when you think back to the other artists that we covered i mean i think a mandul too is probably the only other one that's been a little more psychedelic right and they wanted nothing to do with yeah. anything that sounded like english or american music at all <laughs> so right agitation free was kind of jazzy yeah yeah maybe. but um i gotta tell you i got cards on the table i'm not a jazz person <laughs> so you throw all those names at me <laughs> I think they mean a ton to you. Like you're into this. <laughs> yeah, stuff, I really yeah? like jazz and blues a lot. I think I'm in that strict. I'm on. I'm in the commune. If I'm on dual two, <laughs> build my walls, keep the jazz out. So we'll see how this goes today.
so these guys got started in jazz bands, right? So in addition to seeing the Titans come mm-hmm. through and perform, they were in pretty significant jazz acts in Europe. Manny says he was in bands in Switzerland going back to 1959. So I think he was born like 1940, 1941. I think this was before rock even hit Europe, right? Yeah. Late 50s. He performed and recorded in the Irene Schweitzer Trio with Uli Trepta. So the, the three of them, Irene Schweitzer mm-hmm. on a piano, Trepta on bass, and Manny on the drums. That was, I think that was probably the first time he was in a studio recording anything. He also played some drums alongside Jackie Liebesite in what was called the Globe Unity Orchestra. They have drum credits together on the album Globe Unity, 1967. Credit to pianist Alexander von Schlippenbach. I think we actually are able to find a clip of it, and here it is. So according to Manny, it sounds like he and Jackie both explored a lot of jazz together in the early mm-hmm. to mid 60s and then ultimately came together to lay some of the stuff down on tape with Schlippenbach. And I think there are a ton of other people credited on this record. <laughs> So around the same time, in around 1967, Manny and Uli were part of, I'm going to call it a, it's a recording, I guess, or a compilation that was called Jazz Meets India, which you hated this, didn't you? (laughs) I I didn't mind it. Okay. I didn't mind it. I think George Harrison softened me up to all the Indian stuff. Um, When it first started. Yeah, as it wore on. When it first started, I was like, Brad's going to hate this. I like the India stuff more than the jazz yeah, stuff, yeah. I will say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Within that, it's definitely Manny on the drums about 10 minutes in, but is that him on the Indian drum too? Uh, there's think it might places be. where he says I, he learned I, how to yeah. play it, but. Yeah, I think he is called a Talvi or something like that. And I think he, yeah, I was reading in some interviews that he either, I think he taught himself how to play it. Well, um, no, someone in India taught him how to play it, and I will never be able to pronounce that man's name. Oh, really? <laughs> I did see his name in an interview, and it's. It sounded like one of the yoga poses I'm trying to learn how to do to be more zen. <laughs> so there we go. If we can't master Neumeyer or Neumeyer, no, there we're was not gonna, no way I was, ta- that I was tackling that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, sir, for your service. <laughs> so just another note just to foreshadow some things. There is a, a recording that was released in 1978 called Early Tapes with Trepta Neumeyer. So this is from the 60s, just released much later, and it has a track on it called Hinton. Hmm. So that's a thread that runs through all this. 
so ultimately, as we said, right, the jazz stuff that was sort of the foundation for these guys, but they wanted to play electric rock, right? They decided. They did. I, I haven't been able to really tap into what prompted that. I don't know if you saw anything in the in various interviews, but it happened, right? There was a, I just there was a switch. Kept seeing them kind of referring back to Hendrix in particular, and and just wanting to incorporate what they knew how to do from listening to and playing jazz for so long and but yet plug in and just yeah. go for it <laughs> well and you you hear that right gifted and this is true of can too i think gifted talented sophisticated musicians masters of their crafts and right yeah really really good at what they do decide to play rock and really pushing the boundaries pushing yeah. it forward right? yeah exactly so Summer 1968 in Zurich, the Guru Guru Groove Band is formed. That was very hard to say. I see why they dropped the yeah. Groove Band. Yep. <laughs> I think something about in the same sense with Zurich too threw me <laughs> off. Anyway, <laughs> it's hard. And Manny says, right, we wanted to leave the free jazz thing into the direction of electronically amplified music, citing Hendrix, Zappa, The Who, The Stones, and Pink Floyd. So some names we've seen before, some names we haven't, right? I don't mm -hmm. think we've heard of Zappa as an influence. No. We'll get to how that might have happened in a minute. The original lineup, according to Alan Freeman's entry on the band in The Crack in the Cosmic Egg, was Neumeyer Trepta R. Spurry on electric sax, Gerd Gewisser on organ, and someone named Sax on vocals. This got slimmed down considerably, I think. Freeman then writes that Neumeyer and Trepta added Axe Genrich because they, quote, wanted someone much more original than the technically talented guitarists they had previously on the roster. So the other three guys fired. Now arrives Axe Genrich. Is there a better name for guitarist oh my God. than Axe? It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's like right up there with Slash. <laughs> yeah, right. It's about a spot on. I mean, we talked about Liebesite as a great name for yeah. a drummer. Right, so, similar thing. So I remember this name from our Agitation Free episode. Um, and I remember, mm -hmm. I think we were talking about, I don't think he recorded on even Malash. That was their first record. Yeah. He was gone by then. I don't think he recorded with them. I think he just toured with them for like a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So he, interestingly, it's, there's not a lot about the early lives mm -mm. of Trepta and Neumeyer. Acts maybe a little bit more forthcoming in interviews. Talks about how he, when he was in school, he went through it. He's a little bit younger, I think, right? He's maybe four yeah. or five years younger than these other guys and maybe in that respect kind of like the michael caroli of the group right a guitarist probably picked up the guitar because he was into rock mm -hmm. meets these jazz guys right and it's just a perfect fit so in any case he was into he's into a lot of the blues guys saw them when they he was he's a berliner he grew up mm -hmm. in berlin told psychedelic baby that he saw bb king james brown frank zappa pink floyd among others but the biggest flash this is a quote from him was seeing Jimi Hendrix in 1967 on the first European tour. I can't imagine what that would have been like to go to a rock show and see what he was doing. With yeah, yeah. If that was the tour that launched a thousand crowd rock bands, that works for me. <laughs> Yeah, all this kind of points to R&B and the blues having more of an influence on Axe's guitar play than might be true of a lot of the other Krautrock bands. 
he points specifically to this blues band called Canned Heat and their song Refried Boogie. And he also refers to the Stones' Everybody Needs Somebody to Love as influences. And I just wanted to call out what Brad wrote in our notes (laughs) outline for this. He wrote, and I quote, Canned Heat is everything I stand against. (laughs) Would you like to explain that? Well, I just... What's that going in the country song? It's horrible. <laughs> this is the music from the progressive insurance ads, and it can stay there. I mean, I, yeah. And then you wrote in response, like, can we talk about what your problem is with blues music? And I, I don't really have a great read on it because I do like some blues. Like, I like Jack White, I like what he does. I, I don't know. I just like that style more. Yeah. I think you right? would I like, like that. Nah, 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 nah. You would like the Buddy Wells album that I talked about earlier, I think. You should maybe start with that one. It's more Chicago blues, which is different from a Delta blues or a Mississippi blues. I think your style is more Chicago, Detroit. I like that kind of raw sound. I think you kind of veer into dangerous territory when you have technically good musicians playing the blues, right? Who did I just describe? I described Eric Clapton. <laughs> Nobody here likes Eric Clapton. No, this is true. <laughs> Go home. Nobody right? likes Go Eric home, Clapton. Eric Clapton. So I feel like like when it goes in that direction, and I don't know, that like, that's kind of what canned heat sounds like to me, like blues without soul, you know? Hmm. Which is interesting because they actually are a very accomplished band. <laughs> and they are a band okay. that is comprised of, they were like true blues collectors. They really know their stuff. And uh, Henry Vestine, who was in that band, was also in the Mothers of Invention for a little while with Frank Zappa. So that they are like accomplished musicians. <laughs> Look, they may have been practicing their craft and honing it over the course of decades, but the 30 seconds that I've seen in the progressive commercials... I, I don't think that's representative of their best work. So... Okay. Anyway. Um, if you can't have snap judgments, like, what's the point of America? <laughs> So that's fine. I think, yeah, complicated relationship to the blues. Like some, don't like others. It's a trial and error thing with me, right? It's, we'll see. So Axe talking again about his guitar influences. Hendrix at the forefront. Various free jazz bands in Berlin. Also really into early Tangerine Dream and Agitation Free. So it makes perfect sense. He joined one of those bands. Apparently did record with Agitation Free, but the tapes were lost. Yeah, I missed that. I was thinking maybe he didn't record with them, but... I forgot about that. I think you're right. <laughs> right? We don't have, there's no record yeah. of it. So he played a show on April 12th, 1970. Remembers that date and place exactly because he was with Agitation Free and he saw Guru Guru there. And it sounds like on that day, shortly thereafter, he just ditched Agitation Free mm-hmm. and joined Guru mm-hmm. Guru. He writing that, quote, they were much more exotic. I took a look at their painted van and I got this on the road feeling immediately. Unquote. Maybe he knew they had the better drugs. <laughs> yeah. So when I grew up, my mom would always point to those painted vans and she'd say, never get into one of those. Yes. <laughs> those are not for children. There were qu- quite um, a few of them around where we grew up. <laughs> right. It was always like desert sunsets yes. on the side. Yeah. Who knows what happened inside them? But right. Ax Genrick was like, 
jumping right in. So Carly, you found this pretty great clip of Manny describing how he recruited or maybe didn't recruit, I guess, Axe just asked to play. Yeah, we've read the story in one of the articles that we had found about how Axe joined the band. But then I found an audio clip of Manny telling his side of the story. And for Axe, he says, you know, he saw this band, he thought they were great, and he wanted to play with them. They didn't have a guitar player at the time. So when the show got to the intermission, he went up and asked them if he could join them to play. So they agreed to it, but then Axe had to have his friend drive him back to his house to get his guitar and then drive back, (laughs) which really begs the question of how long was this intermission, but I guess maybe it was longer than (laughs) what one might think. I'll be back in 45 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he played and they liked him. And so that's how he ended up in the band. Manny tells the side of the story and maybe we can pull that clip but they had another guitar player who fell ill and couldn't play and i think ultimately he left the country yeah he was an american serviceman yeah and so he i think he said he fell ill and he couldn't play with them anymore and had to go back to america and so they just didn't have a guitar player so manny was like so when this guy asked if he could join us during the intermission we were like Sure, I guess we'll give you a shot. And then they liked him. And yeah, here's the clip. Ox jumped in in Berlin. When we played, um, the bass player Uli Trepte with him, I founded the group, you know. And um, then we thought, yeah, Jim was going to the military hospital and they brought him to his spy blood. And this morning, you know, in the evening we had a concert and where. Well, we took a half trip, you know, and played in duo. We thought, okay, we must play. And then Ax meet us and said, uh, in the intermission, he said, I play guitar, shall I get my guitar and so on? We said, yeah, you can try. And so we were not so interested. And, and then he jumped in and it was working good. And we said, okay, you could be our new guitar player if you want. And then he had to move from Berlin to Heidelberg in our commune, because with Guru Guru, everybody had to live in the commune. No other group playing was allowed. No job, only music, Guru Guru. That was the life there. So all kinds of cross-cutting themes here, right? So Can's first vocalist, Malcolm Mooney, was an American who was having psychiatric issues mm-hmm. or something, had to go home. And then suddenly they find a guy and it clicks and it's perfect. Sounds a lot like what happened here, right? We yeah, we had an American guy, yeah. right? You need to go home. It's also just a random pattern of how they just find people for their bands or to work with, right? Can just found Damo busking on a street corner right before their show. And they were like, hey, you want to be the singer in our band today? <laughs> like after Malcolm Mooney left and then he was in the band. Right. And then randomly, Brian Eno comes into a Harmonia show and plays with them and then works with them later. Right. It's it's all about showing up, right? Was it 90% of life is showing up? I just think when you put that into context of today, like, can you, I just don't, like, does that happen today? I just think things are so much more buttoned yeah, down. Yeah, like, I just right? don't think that can happen really as organically today as it would then, right? Yeah. I love that line from the clip, Manny saying, you know, you could be in our band, but you got to come join the con. Yeah. So, like, there were rules, yeah. apparently. Yeah. 
Yes, and you, the rules were no rules. The, and the rules were, <laughs> right? but one of the rules was you could not have another job. <laughs> right. The band was your job. <laughs> That's yeah. what he said. It's just kind of people maybe drifting across one another and recognizing, all right, I'm committed to this, right? Mm-hmm. I believe in mm-hmm. this. I really care about this. And so they find each other and they stick. So on the subject of the commune, Wikipedia says some of the musicians, didn't say who, live together in a commune in the German Oldenwald region. According to Manny in that clip, sounded like it was a requirement. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you want to be on the roster, right? Here you go. They planned a lot of their gigs in coordination with the Socialist German Student Union, and they would read political screeds during their shows. Uh, And some of them were performed in prisons. So they were... You know, they were out there on the bleeding edge. This was, I think, probably maybe more of a Berlin thing than right. Yeah. anything we've seen in Dusseldorf. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess this was true, too, of Amundul, too, right? They were from Hamburg, and things were hopping there, right? Yeah. They had yeah. Bader-Meinhof people moving through, right? Communes were probably communes wherever they were, but it just seemed like more of a feature that the shows had a political dimension to them and the challenge of the music was in accord with the challenge, the political challenge, the confrontation, right? Yeah. Youth against the system kind of a thing. Yeah. That was kind of red hot, right? Yeah. Manny told Aural Innovations, our music was a political statement in itself. The sessions we had with other bands or some of their members, Amandul, Can, Zol Caravan, Kron, had a touch of conspiracy. I think I remember Tangerine Dream. One of the writers about Tangerine Dream in these early days was saying, you know, they, they weren't political enough for a lot of the listeners, but the listeners didn't appreciate that the music itself, right? Yeah. Structureless, distorted, was communicating something that, you know, it wasn't scripted out in words, Mm -hmm. but it shouldn't have been too hard to figure out, right? This is the big middle finger in the end. Yeah. Yeah. And they caught the attention of Rolf Ulrich Kaiser, who we also talked about in the Tangerine Dream episode, right? He was the, I think he was a writer or journalist yeah. of some kind originally. He really kind of latched onto this Cosmische music scene, right? The underground music scene in Germany. Founded Or Records, which then signed Flo de Cologne, Embryo, Tangerine Dream, Guru Guru, and Ashra Temple. So I actually went in and looked at the catalog, Or catalog. I've got a few records, right, that have the, mm-hmm. the Or, the ear trademark on it logo on it including guru guru's first record it's a reissue the one i have but electronic meditation was or's fourth release and guru guru's ufo was the fifth so they came out in around the same month in 1970 so right they were right on the bleeding edge of of what was going on in the berlin scene absolutely and rolf ulrich kaiser was kind of trying to tie it all together Kaiser was quite a character so he hooked up with timothy leary in switzerland in 1972 so you can imagine what might have come of that. <laughs> yeah. And I guess like so many of these record guys, right? Maybe not always with the artists in front of mind. He apparently secretly recorded jam sessions with prominent crowd rock musicians and then subsequently issued the recordings on his label as the Cosmic Jokers records, yeah, right? Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> he just released them under a completely different band name. So we might have to, we're going to have to explore the Cosmic Jokers a little bit. Yeah, Julian Cope loves them. I feel like all the Cosmic Joker albums are in Crowd Rock Sampler. Yeah, people weren't happy about this. Like Klaus Schulze, I think he sued him over it, Um, which is reasonable, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think I read somewhere that someone was in a record store and heard the music. It's like, that's me. (laughs) How did that get there? 
And the answer is Rolf Ulrich Kaiser, right? But on the up and up, at least, he released the first, at least the first few Guru Guru albums on the Or label. Wikipedia lists 25 current and former members of Guru Guru. I think that's really just people passing through in collaboration with Manny, who has been the one constant yeah, over I think, 50 years yeah, now. Yeah, I think so too. We're not inclined to check the credits of all 40 plus releases. Like we do a lot of research on this. <laughs> that's a lot. That would be like checking all the yeah. Tangerine Dream albums. It's just too many. <laughs> yeah, we're not in for the busy work, you know? <laughs> we need an intern for that and we haven't gotten there, so. <laughs> right. But, you know, we could do a GoFundMe. Any of you listeners who want a job for the summer that pays nothing, <laughs> we've uh, got one. You can for help you. us with our next our next few podcast episodes. Yeah, Julian Cope says this about Guru Guru in the Krautrock Sampler book. All of the early Or records were interesting, and all of them weird. He talks a little while about Flow to Cologne, and then shifts gears to talk about Guru Guru. Much better and occasionally incredible were Guru Guru, a heavy rock trio with its heart in the free rock that the MC5 were never allowed to record. No vocals, except affected thing voices, scary, repeated, and not very often at all. Mainly just huge epic instrumentals, LPs of two or three tracks aside. That's pretty spot on, I think. Yeah, I thought the MC5 comment was interesting and accurate. It's like, yeah. They were revolutionaries, but they were still working within constraints. Yeah. They were working within the, the pop song, three to four very minutes. Very American. There's, there's a couple eight-minute tracks, I think, on that kick out the jams record but that was live stuff it, yeah that was a live recording so so early gigs according to setlist.fm they have 213 shows logged that is a significant undercount i've read elsewhere that guru guru has played as many as 2500 which i mean that sounds mm-hmm. right over, over 50, 50 years, years right? yeah i guess 50 shows a year 50 years yeah mm-hmm. probably the most significant of the early gigs they did was their show on september 29 1968. This was the Essener Songtaga, a five-day festival organized by Rolf Ulrich Kaiser, sponsored by Lufthansa. Uh, maybe someone got Michael Roeder to call his dad, put some money in. Pretty big festival. On Saturday alone, Amandul, Olympic, Mothers of Invention played. Alexis Corner, Guru Guru, and Tangerine Dream on Sunday. The Moody Blues were there, if you're into that kind of thing. Soul Caravan again. Right, this is a big deal. Just for reference, this happened 15 months after Monterey Pop and 11 months before Woodstock. You know, and for Germany, this was, I think, probably the first significant festival event. It's pretty major. Yeah. There's some pretty good coverage of this in the Romantic Warriors Krautrock 2 DVD. Adele Schmidt and Jose Zagara Holder have put these together. I have the first one, which is kind of focused on the Dusseldorf bands. Um, I don't have the second one, but I, I was able to watch a clip of it on, on YouTube. So you'll probably get more and better. And certainly actually even some footage, I think, of this show. If I'm not sure if Guru Guru, you, you'll see. But check out the DVD. Very good stuff. From there, they went on to do Underground Explosion, which was in April of 1969 in Zurich. Then October 25th, 1970, they played the International Essen Blues and Pop Festival. And by this time, they've added acts to the full lineup. There is a live bootleg of that particular show. Someone uploaded the first track, Stone In, to uh, YouTube. We've got a clip of that.
So when you hear that, you probably don't have to reach too far to get to the conclusion that members of this band did considerable amounts of acid all the time. Like, and the various sources that we've consulted that, like, all the time, they took it. They, every um, interview talks about how much acid they did. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I think Axe talks about where he got into the van, <laughs> yes. got into the painted van, and there's Uli turning him on to acid. He said in an interview, he felt manipulated, but he also loved it. <laughs> so these older guys, they pull you into the van, they take you under the wing, under their wing, they, they give you LSD, and you turn into a guitar hero, right. a rock god. <laughs> right. Everybody wins, <laughs> I guess. I thought it was interesting to note that these bands are actually touring. We've kind of been in a phase of crowd rock bands that didn't, really tour or play live all that much because they were restrained or constrained by their equipment, right? Either it was too fragile, it would overheat, or it was too hard to recreate the sounds that they were making in the studio. So they weren't really as focused on playing live. And I found all of this to be interesting in the research because some of the timeframes are overlapping a bit that these festivals are happening and these bands are playing, but you know, they they just don't seem to have the constraints that like Annoy or Cluster or somebody would have had because of just the technical aspects of their equipment. Yeah. Right. Guitar, rock, you plug it in, you play. And even the treatments that the sound engineers will mm-hmm. give it, and we'll talk about Connie Plank when we get to Hinton, it still sounds great, <laughs> right? Just them sitting there playing. I don't know. There's There's a YouTube video of them playing on a German TV show. It looks like they're just in their own house. They're, it looks like they're in a trashed room. <laughs> yes. Probably of the... Co- you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I do. Yeah. And and they're just playing, and it sounds terrific. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I guess they could just pick up their amps and... Like, right? plug in and, and just go. Although there was, like, yeah. a funny equipment thing happening, but it was much smaller in size than, like, what a lot of those other bands were using. Yeah. And they definitely did some stuff on, on the records, which you're going to get to in a second. They played around a little bit with some with some interesting equipment. So all I could think watching that YouTube video was, oh, I wonder what the neighbors think because it looked like they were in a living room, and if you could see out yeah. the window, they were elevated off the ground. So it was like right. not like a ground level situation. <laughs> and then there's that weird point. They're actually playing electric junk, yeah. right? And we'll put the clip in like right here. Why not? Right. So part of what you just heard is, is that Uli has something in his mouth. I think it might be like a contact microphone that, in his mouth. Yeah, that's what I think I had a note in the outline. I wondered what that was. Yeah. And so he's like grunting into this thing and there's a wire dangling. That's connected to like out of his mouth. a box or two. Knobs are being twiddled. Pedals are being pushed. Something to distort that. It's kind of freaky mm-hmm. because he's like, he looks like a ventriloquist. Like, if you're not looking at the dummy and you're just looking at the ventriloquist making bizarre faces yeah. as they try to make noise without moving. Yeah. Anyway, it's something to see. Yeah. Check it uh, out. Yeah. It's a good it's a good watch just for that alone. 
Right. And then they just kick it on the guitars. Yeah. Right. They just crush it. stuff so let's let's go now to the first album okay right so now they've played these shows they've rocked the house now they're in the studio the result is ufo i have this on lp i got this at the rough trade manhattan any record store that has a kraut rock section even if it has six records in it it's right up my alley and you know i have to buy three of the six records (laughs) that's how i was at disco doro in um bologna they had a kraut rock section. I was like, oh, God. You had a kraut rock section. Now you have half a kraut <laughs> yeah. rock section. This is a pretty great record. I put on all the time when I work. I work at home on Mondays and Fridays, and I just I'd slap it down and crank it up. It's kind of in the background. I make it loud enough that it's kind of in the foreground, too. And it's just it has like this kind of weight to it that feels different from Hinton. I might like it better. But I probably don't like it so much better that I'm going to make a thing out of it with you, Carla. Like, I think it's fine. You picked it, and that's fine. But they do, they feel different when you listen to them, don't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, Very much so, yeah. I think. This was recorded in the Hansa studio in Berlin, where Bowie subsequently would do the Berlin trilogy. I think all three of the mm-hmm. records, but at the least, Low and Heroes. The sound really feels like it's filling... The space. There's just a ton of reverb, flange work, a lot of distortion in the guitar and bass. There's not a lot of technical, like fingery, many notes Mm-mm. guitar play in the same way as you might hear on Hinton. Yeah, I just love it. I crank that up. Like I said, I went to this record first because this was the one in Crat Rock yeah. Sampler. And that opening track, it sounds so disjointed to me. It was like too all over the place for me. Like I, there was nothing. I couldn't grab on to anything to like a drum beat or a guitar riff or whatever. And yeah. like hold or a bass line really. And like hold on to that is like, okay, this is my common thread and everything else around it can happen. Yeah. I couldn't find that and it was sounded so messy to me for lack of a, yeah. a better adjective yeah that i just couldn't it didn't like i said it didn't grab me so like yeah. kind of got through stone in and then i was like mm, let me try this other record i don't even know that i listened to any of the other tracks that just stopped me yeah. And then I loved Electric Junk, and then I, that was the one I more gravitated to. Since yeah. spending so much time with Hinton, I've gone back and been listening to UFO 
a lot and often I'm listening to UFO and then to Hinton so that I have them back to back as a comparison and I do see your comments about it sounding fuller and it sounds like they're in a bigger room like I I get all that like I I I have a better appreciation for it now but it took me many more listens to get there well I think it also speaks to just strategically like what do you want to start your album with yeah right I give them credit. They start with a gong, (laughs) right? But it is kind of amorphous, right? It's free. Yeah, it's free rock, right? Right. It's exactly what they said. (laughs) Yeah. As advertised. But I I think if you have one of the tracks, as you said, holding it together and then everything else just plays through and around and above it, then you have something to kind of carry you through mm-hmm. i yeah i appreciate that i guess i and we'll talk more about this in, in hinton i feel like i'm getting treated to how expert they are on their instruments in hinton yeah and i have a I have a little bit of an allergy to that as i feel like this is starting to get a little bit proggy just a little bit it's right? very much dancing on the edge i mean it is circling yeah. the drain <laughs> we're circling in some right. spots like yeah for sure that's a cool feeling that's (laughs) that's swirling right yeah i think what i struggle with with jazz is i always feel like they're having more fun than i am right (laughs) they're up there they're like they got their bass up under their chins and they're like smiling and they're so happy and they're playing a million notes a minute and none of them make any damn sense and i'm thinking like can someone just like kick a hole in the wall and rock please you know yeah i don't feel that terribly in Hinton but it's just a, enough more of it kind of just I like the cloudy icky distorty Hendrixness of this I, one a lot I also felt like going from like once I realized that Connie Plank could produce Hinton it also kind of went from this was them left to their own devices versus now they have a very experienced producer yeah. working with them to help maybe still let keep it be free rock I'm using air quotes but yeah but constrain it a little more so that it's a little yeah. more digestible than what they were doing in UFO I, I think UFO is just like the raw version of what yeah. happens when experienced musicians get together and jam then they're tripping yeah and they're tripping and yes we 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 sh- Definitely need to say that should just be another instrument, LSD. Yeah. <laughs> so. <No. laughs> um, so some other thoughts here, like the liner notes are interesting. Two different inscriptions, one on either side of the gatefold. The first is in English. Soon the UFOs will land and mankind will meet much stronger brains and habits. Let's get ready for that. P. Hinton. It, it's written as though P. Hinton had written those words, <laughs> right? That they're attributed <laughs> to P. Hinton. We don't know who P. Hinton no, and is. And it does come up in some other places, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Mystery P. Hinton. The second side of the gatefold. Dies ist unsere erste Platte. Eine Platte ist ein Produkt. Unsere Musik ist ein Prozess. Dies ist die... Takes a breath. Gebrauchsanweisung. Uns lives zu hören. So, they're saying this is our first record. A record is a product. Our music is a process. This is the instruction manual to hear us live. That's pretty cool. That's cool. It's, I, I think it almost reads a little bit like an apology. 
right? Like, <laughs> oh, that's true. I got. I'm, we're going to give you this, but what we really want is for you to play it, internalize it, take that to the show, right? And then you will be sufficiently trained and positioned to get the full Guru Guru experience <laughs> when we play it live. So, cool. Julian Cope calls UFO a menage a trois of Joy Division, Deep Purple, and a more cosmische version of Neil Young's experimental feedback frenzies on ARC. First of all, that's Julian Cope's range there. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> There's no one else who would pull those three bands together in a sentence. Right. <laughs> Joy Division's an interesting mm-hmm. reference there, and that's going to jump out at you and me, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. That's our bread and mm-hmm. butter. There's kind of doom in it, right? Yeah. I, I, I'm guessing that's the big, right? Alan Freeman in Cracking the Cosmic Egg says, it's a greatly condensed versions of music thrashed out in concert jams. Describes the sound as rattling drums, shuddering bass, and a swamp full of guitars. I think that kind of gets to what I was trying to say. It's It feels like it's in a big room and all the sounds bouncing off, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of ringing and rattling. And Connie Plank will show up later to get that shit under control. <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot in David Stubbs' Future Days book about Guru Guru, but just a couple things that I pulled out. He said that Guru Guru are heavy work indeed at this stage, moving up and down the registers like giant industrial hoists. Part of it make throbbing gristle sound like Depeche Mode. Again, too. <laughs> That's, Yeah. That's saying something. Yeah, it sure is. And actually, I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) He goes on to say, this is raw, barely treated rock noise, subjected to the same annihilation by abstraction as had been visited on jazz in its historical free jazz phase, rising in ear-splitting crescendos to a beautiful confrontation with the rubble of newly dynamited preconceptions about the shape, direction, and origin of rock music. Hard to speak of an album that's so in pieces as a cornerstone of German music, but as a founding statement of intensity, it's matched only by cluster with a K slash early cluster. I think he was talking about annihilating jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Count me in. I mean, it is forceful. It's a declaration. Hearing it after we've heard electronic meditation and after we've heard Yeti, it still really is distinctive. It's. It really is. I in our pre-show conversation i told you that yes i think it was yesterday at the office i listened to yeti and then electronic meditation and then ufo and then hinton like in order because i was just curious and the sounds were i thought i might be able to draw more comparisons between yeti and ufo but honestly the sound guru guru's sound is so much larger (laughs) than yeti and i felt you know those guitars in Yeti are incredible, and oh, they're, they're insane. And then yeah. I Shaking King. Yeah, and yeah. I was like, yeah. oh. <laughs> and then when then listening to like UFO and like knowing that these all have come out around the same, you know, within a year or so of each other, right? It was kind of eye opening. I was like, oh my gosh, their sound is so much richer, but also they are accomplished musicians and. I don't know that Amon Duel was in the same caliber of musicianship at that point. Yeah. So I don't know if that has something to do with it or it was just different. And same with electronic meditation. It was just, I wouldn't say that I liked one 
over the other. It's just the Guru Guru stuff is just meteor. like it maybe has a little more in common with electronic mm-hmm. meditation because it's there aren't the vocals there isn't any kind of attempt to do a bite-sized songs three four minute tracks they had that same thing where they just cut off a song yeah. in the middle because yeah. <laughs> they they were like we got to put this on a record and we don't know how to end yeah, this so whatever fits. and there's a lot of space rocky kind of stuff going on in it right genesis and ufo mm-hmm. and so fine but like you know, we've talked about how Klaus Schultz is playing the hell out of the drums on electronic yeah. meditation, but you're barely hearing it. It's like tantalizing you. Yeah. The drums are like right mm-hmm. here, you know? And if they're not perfectly heard, it's because the guitars are so freaking loud, too. Yeah. You can imagine being in the room and feeling it. And that's such a good point. I guess it just gets back to to how they've been mixed, right? So if the drums were a little further back in the mix in electronic meditation, that is like not the case here. I almost feel like Tangerine Dream, even that early, was trying to convey a sense of distance, right? Yeah. Like vastness of the universe Yeah, we talked about that, I think, in that episode. And certainly by the time they did Alpha Centauri, with this, you feel like you're in the middle of them in a in a room that's just cavernous yeah yeah. but they're bearing in on you on all sides (laughs) for better or worse yeah (laughs) so this is some something of a strategy carly because i got us to talk a lot about i know (laughs) but now's the time let's talk about hitting Hinton was released on October 5th, 1971 on Orr Records. So slotting this into the Krautrock timeline, which we were just talking about, we had Yeti released in April of 1970, Ashra Temple released June of 1971, Tago Mago released August 1971, Noise self-titled record was recorded in December of 1971 and then released the following year. Those are some pretty heavy yeah. hitter records that were coming out at that time. It also speaks to, all right, we want to call this Krautrock, rock, but that's a good range of stuff in one year. Mm-hmm. And so they come in after Tago Mago and before self-titled Noir. Yeah. Interesting. So according to Axe, they recorded in a small studio in Hamburg. It just sounds like a smaller room, right? It sounds like everything's just kind of locked down a little more the space is more confined yeah. than with ufo I, as i said it feels more reined in a little bit yeah and i feel like it's just like mic'd more tightly those drums yeah. really snap yeah yeah so credits lineup is axe genrick guitar vocals uli trepta bass electronics it says radio in parenthesis vocals manny newmeyer this gets a little weird it says performer and then in brackets sounding being Effects, in brackets, Zonk Machine, which we do have an explanation for. Bear with us. Drums, in brackets, electric drums. Cymbals, cymbals, in brackets. <laughs> Sometimes a cymbal is just a cymbal, Fred would say. <laughs> a gong, electronics, including a contact microphone. Whistle, kalimba, and voice. Weird that Uli and Axe 
have vocals and Manny has voice. I'm not sure what all that means, but the equipment, the contact microphone is what it says on the, um, on the credits is what it sounds. A microphone designed to be in physical contact with the object producing sound. A contact mic receives and derives its audio signal from mechanical vibrations instead of airborne sound waves. That's a quote from Sweetwater Musical Instrument yeah. website. The sensor looks like the drum on the end of a stethoscope. I don't know if it works the same way, but it's electronic, right? So vibrations hit that surface and then are converted into signal rather than being picked up through the air like an open air mic, like I'm hoping this mic is doing. <laughs> so is this what Uli had in his mouth when... Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. In that video? It must be. I'm thinking that's Yeah, I'm not case. sure, but it sounds like maybe that's probably what he was doing. That would probably... We could defer to Sean on that one. Yeah. <laughs> like, Sean, what is this? <laughs> so you can do the Zonk machine if you want. <laughs> which, speaking of which... <laughs> <laughs> so the Zonk machine is a fuzz box, a distortion pedal. So version one was manufactured by John Hornby Skews in Leeds. Version two was manufactured by Wilsick Sound in the early 1970s after its designer, Charlie Ramsker, left Skews to start his own brand. So the LP credits Newmeyer for use of the Zonk machine, but was he using it as a standalone instrument, separate and apart from Genrich's guitar, or was he operating it while Genrich was playing through it? So we took that question to Sean, right? That was what we asked Sean. Yeah. So you remember Sean from our Synth Sounds in the 70s episode? Yeah. He knows how all this stuff works. You can say Zonk Machine to him, and he'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what that was. <laughs> so he texted us back. Here's what he said. So he described this as a very interesting pedal. The British version of the Tone Bender, which was an American pedal which defined the early Rolling Stone sound. He says it had two knobs, fuzz and swell. Sean figured they were either running drums, bass, and vocals through it, or it could have been that he was running the guitar through it, but while the guitarist was playing the guitar, so that would have usually required two hands. So Manny then conceivably was modulating the knobs to vary the sound from clean to overdriven to full-on face crushing uh, yeah I, i'm not sure i get it because is it a pedal if it has knobs on it how do you like do you turn the knobs with your toes you don't i think you have manny doing it um, yeah but it sounds like he could have hooked it up to anything he could have hooked it up to the contact mic or to the microphone if someone's doing vocals it's not inconceivable so it's almost like the contact microphone was attached to a zonk machine Anything's possible. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Someone so, watch that video who has more <laughs> musical instrument knowledge than us and tweet us about it. <laughs> so writing credits went to each of the three band members individually and to Guru Guru together. Production credit is Guru Guru and the engineer is Connie Plank. Yeah, and in the interview with Axe, he went on to say that the production of Hinton was very different from UFO, citing the smaller studio and that, quote, we had the master sound man, Connie Plank, for the first time. He brought interesting sound effects to the mix and produced every title more carefully. And I started doing guitar overdubs, which was new to me, but I had no problems because Connie gave me much room. You can hear a big difference between UFO and Hinton. And mm -hmm. there's Connie again. It just sounds more polished. Yeah. But not polished, if that makes sense. Cover art? Yikes. 
Brad wrote yikes in the outline. <laughs> yeah. A side story here. They had this record. They had a reissue of it in the racks at Newberry Comics for months, months. And I kept buying other stuff. Like maybe some part of like taking that record up to the counter and handing it to the dude stopped me from buying it. And that and the fact that I figured it was just going to be there for like, who was going to buy this, right? <laughs> it's Guru Guru. It's not UFO. Who in Cambridge is going to buy this? Well, it's old. Of course it's old. Now I go up there. I'm like, hey, have you got Hinton? The guy dials it up. And nope, sorry. So description, it is a, how would you describe it? It's a man's backside. It's man man's bare backside. Mm-hmm. And then with a smaller image of the, the same man's backside. I mean, it just keeps getting smaller. It's like an infinite regression of photos of the man's backside placed over the butt crack. So into infinity we go. <laughs> up an in infinity of butt cracks. Hinton means rear in German. Yeah, so pun very much intended. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate this cover. Hmm? Oh, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's challenging. Oh, and Guru Guru is like written on the butt. Yeah, right? yeah. I was hoping we would find out who was the owner of the butt <laughs> in that uh, interview, the Mon- Manny interview that I was listening to. But as they were talking about the cover, he didn't talk about that. He just mentioned that that was the cover design that they designed and they liked and the record label hated it. And they told the record label they didn't yeah. care and that's what they were going with. And that's what happened. This is also on Aura Records, right? Mm-hmm. So Rolf didn't like it? No. Rebel, Rebel Rolf? not. Oh. <laughs> no, I, I'm thinking I missed my opportunity with that. Should have picked it up when I had the chance. I know. I haven't looked on Discogs to see if I could find a reasonable copy somewhere. Alas. Julian Cope. Hinton doesn't make Julian Cope's top 50. And by the way, like, we are not beholden to Julian. We love him to death. But we've done a couple that haven't been on the list, right? Agitation Free wasn't on the list. Audubon yep. wasn't on the list. So this is our third one. UFO actually makes the list. He does note though, and this is quoting, it's quoting the book, though I've put only one Guru Guru LP in my top 50, I should mention that their first four LPs are remarkable and charming in a curious and inspired way. I'd recommend you listen to Hinton, Kangaroo, and Guru Guru, but I personally get less into them as they become more quirky and feature more rock elements. I think that's his way of saying they get more prog. <laughs> no, I, I, I kind of hear where he's coming from. Yeah. A little bit. Ulrich Adelt, Krautrock German music in the 70s, didn't comment specifically on Hinton either, but he notes generally about the band that, quote, musically, their psychedelic rock instrumentals were fairly close to the music of Anglo-American artists, in particular the guitar solos of Jimi Hendrix, only much looser and leaning more toward free improvisation. David Stubbs in Future Days had fairly long quote about this and I, and I actually only clipped part of it and it says with 1971's Hinton Guru Guru are beginning to lighten up a little the smoke and sludge are clearing and at times this almost resembles recognizable rock jamming of some sort this is partly down to the influence of Connie Plank on engineering duty there are vocals groaning amid the weight of the playing the guitar feedback contact microphones and percussion that brings chunks of girder falling from the rafters it's often self-descriptive. Electric junk is just that. Rock is avenging noise pollution, retaliating against a consumerist society, imposing itself onto the heads of the young. The trio dirty every last <laughs> atom of space with their noise, and even the quieter sections only make room for muddy, distorted, quote, vocal statements. It's music that's intended to mess with the cerebellum, to sow confusion, not to contaminate innocent minds, but to reveal the state of the world. 
like, yeah, Dickie yeah. Stubbs. I'm loving his My writing favorite. too. <laughs> like, there's a different style there than than Julian Cope, but yeah, he brings it. Yeah. All Music gave this three stars. Suck. I don't agree with yeah. that. A quote from them is showing again that the band readily trod the fine line between merely skilled and truly inspired. That's sort of getting at one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I, I'm a little bit on the edge with this record is that they are definitely skilled. They are incredibly skilled. Yeah. Yeah. And there are times when it's really inspired. There are other times where I kind of feel like maybe they're, they're just, I don't know. They're displaying expertise, right? Sometimes it's a little more clinical than bringing the passion and the heat. There are other times where they bring the passion and the heat. So I don't know if that's what all music is getting at. Uh, So I I didn't read the next quote. (laughs) So maybe it's exactly what they're getting at. (laughs) There's always a nagging sense on this album that the group is but one step away from prog rock wank of the worst kind. But then there will be a thick blast of righteous noise or a suddenly lovely dark chime that feels more Blue Oyster Cult than Emerson, Lake, and Palmer say. So yeah, okay. (laughs) I wrote, I feel this deeply with the prog comment. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, so I said they were like circling... Yeah, the they edge. like run right up to the edge and then they pull right back. Right up there. Yeah. And and I think one of our one of the reviewers was saying kind of embrace the prog, right? And that yeah. doesn't always mean what you think it means. It means pushing forward, right? And yeah. this is definitely yeah. a forward push from what they were doing before, which if you wanted to be a dick about it, you'd say, isn't that just Hendrix, but without drums half the time? Or isn't that yeah. just yeah. Hendrix with more noise? You might have said that about UFO. I don't know. I guess I don't want to nitpick too much because I like them both. But you can yeah. definitely yeah. feel the step forward, that progressive, that progress, I guess, right? <laughs> yes. Yorkshire Ned doesn't give us a review. We check in every time. Sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't. Julian Cope's Head Heritage website, a contributor called The Seth Man, reviewed Hinton in May 2004 starts quoting the inscription from the preceding album, urging mankind to get ready for the UFOs. And then he kind of goes off on this binge saying that this is the record that like should go out into space, that humanity should send into space for like aliens to find, to understand our society. And it's funny because in a very early mixtape diaries episode, I kind of lost my (laughs) mind talking about the sugar cubes. And I said basically the same thing. (laughs) That like if the aliens broke open Voyager or whatever and heard birthday by the sugar cubes, we'd be doing all right. We just sent the right <laughs> message. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. I love this. I love, I love this it. whole review. Another quote about the sound of the album. Here they sound less lump and trudgeon than on their stellar UFO LP, but every bit is fry rock and exploratory. But unlike UFO, Hinton exhibits a more flexible and plastic structure. It's loose yet tight. Yeah, I hear that. That's probably a more eloquent-ish way to say what I was trying to say earlier. (laughs) This was an interesting quote, too. It says, The end result was a loose and gigantically sprawling Avanti proto-metal improvisatory that word, that word. Yeah. Improvisatory monster that for all its audio strength caught the trio completely in the raw. And speaking of which, the covers got that too. What cheek. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done, Seth Man. <laughs> that was great. Let's do the track by track, yeah? Let's do it. All right. 
kick us off with electric junk because I know this like hit you squarely between the eyes. This I like, mean, just Carla. Bam. Like I was in it. <laughs> like the squalling guitars start, and I'm like, I'm in the drums. Yeah. It just literally hooked me right from the second. There's like this crash and bang of noise, and then it just goes right into the song. I just, I love this track. I think it's so great. Manny's drumming in the last two minutes of this song is insane. Yeah, we, we haven't gotten to this yet, but he's an incredibly gifted and accomplished drummer. He's out of his mind good. Yeah. He's the kind of guy that when you hear him playing and it sounds so effortless, so you're like thinking, all right, he might not even be trying right now and it's still amazing. There's probably even more in the tank. Right. I was even shocked watching some of the videos and you watch him drum and it's nearly effortless in the sound that's coming out of it. And he's just doing his thing without it's fascinating to watch. And, there, you know, thankfully, there are several YouTube clips out there. You know, a lot of the bands that we've covered, it's hard to find good or better quality YouTube clips. And, and they seem to have some. So that's kind of fun. Yeah. He's in his 80s and apparently still playing shows and I think it's probably harder to play the drums in your 80s I don't know it's just as hard to play bass in your 80s but God bless him I mean, I was hooked with this from this first song. And kind of like I said earlier, I think you can really hear Plank's influence on the sound. He's still allowing them to do their thing, but he's stitching it together in a way that, like for me, I could grab onto that bass line or I could grab onto the drums and that carries me through the messiness of some of the other parts. Well, and the opening just, it reminds me a little bit of like how fire by Jimi Hendrix starts. There's this kind of yeah. like all over the place and then it like snaps, boom, like into the mm-hmm. groove. Right here is that da 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 and it goes kind of through phases, right? As we've talked about, I feel like at least Trepta's bass is doing all the work here to just hold everything on the track. That's what's holding everything together, I think. Yeah. It sounds like there's rhythm guitar playing over it as well. And then there's the the solo kind of improv overdubs mm-hmm. from Genrick, just kind of weaving in and around. I think it is just one drum track and he's just that good. I think we talked yeah. in our can episode or I was thinking, wait a minute, how's 
Jackie playing all of that drums on Does Halloween. Does he have more than two arms? How is this happening? Right. He is not, he's not a four-armed man. <laughs> but I think this is Manny dealing. It's interesting, too, to piece him together with, okay, this is the guy who was playing fairly constrained drums on harmonia, now that you know what he's capable of. Yeah. There was more to it than the kind of the motoric beat. But, wow, is that guy? <laughs> like, yeah. I can imagine he probably sat down with the kid and was like, well, I could do this. <laughs> right. And they're like, write it in, different band. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, spoken word, poetry stuff from, I think, Trepta. I didn't go online to translate it. And then there's some weird kind of garbled voice stuff on a delay. There's some vocals going through effects. Yeah. With this kind of beautiful guitar over top. And then wham, it snaps into the groove again. Love it. Mm-hmm. We'll play a clip of that too. Yeah, the tempo shifts are perfect. Like just the way the song ebbs and flows and switches around is, it's really great. I'm a sucker for drops out of the groove, does some kind of loose and baggy thing in the mm-hmm. middle. Groove comes back. Like yeah. what happens in Hallelujah, I'm like, Hallelujah. Yes, thank you. I Yeah. Maybe one day Mark and Bob will agree, but yeah, not well, in that last episode. <laughs> They'd have to play the whole thing. True. This is true. (laughs) Anyway, we could go on about the attention spans of our compadres. (laughs) So let's talk about the meaning of meaning. Yeah. So I have a recurring beef with a lot of the Krautrock stuff I listen to, which is the vocals. Um, I, I didn't need to hear whoever's chanting the meaning of meaning over like yeah <laughs> i could done without it right yeah this goes back to our first episode right some of that stuff on yeti i'm like oh, okay i forgot about the vocals just, on yeti just, until i started yeah. listening to it yesterday i was like oh god just let renata sing <laughs> everybody else dial it back but i <laughs> i think this might be my favorite track on the album it, it really does have a sabbath feel to me but with more proficient musicians right yeah and not so much so that it becomes like, oh, I'm listening to a heavy metal virtuoso, like two hand tapping, whatever. It's no, it's they're better. And this is maybe the blues that I like because this is bluesy. Yeah, it is. I'm into this. Just that bass line that down, 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 down. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's fantastic. I love this song. Yeah. And, and I even wrote, I was like, I don't know technically what's going on here, but. It's terrific, and I love that whole feedback effect. It was just so cool. And it does, this song does have a Sabbath yeah. feel to it. I saw Julian Cope use the term Kraut Sabbath. <laughs> For this, yeah, that, that's, I think that's <laughs> like, spot on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. 
Just it was the bomb Vietnam, Nepal Disillusioning You push the You'll never hear a crossword from me about Sabbath, or at least the Aussie Sabbath. Yeah. I love that sound. I picked up Florian with this plane on in the car, gets in the car, says, well, this is sludge metal. That's what he called it. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of weighty and gooey and thick. Sometimes I just kind of look at my kids and I'm thinking, yeah, you get it. Yeah. I liked the way this track really progressed into this, like, full wall of sound and then just like crashes out at the end yeah I think the Zonk machine is what's making that distortion. It like grinds up sense, the, yeah. it like frays the guitar sound. Yeah. All music says about this track. I'm assuming they didn't give a three star rating to this track. Um, <laughs> Newmeyer's drumming here is actually some of his best, while Genrick sounds like he's inventing some of Daniel Ash's feedback freakouts years in advance. That's pretty good. That's better than three stars. That's worthy of more than three stars. Yeah. As much as we've said proggy things about Guru Guru. A lot of people make these post-punk references. Joy Division, Throbbing mm-hmm. Gristle, now Bauhaus. There's so much to unpack from this. There's a lot. It's interesting that they reference a lot of those bands too. Yeah. Because I don't think I necessarily would have gone there on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until I read it and I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Diddly. Take a breath. <laughs> Take a deep <laughs> breath, Brad. Let's talk about your favorite song. <laughs> just, I'm just annoyed. This is the vocal problem taken to an extreme. Just play the instruments. <laughs> Who wants to go first? <laughs> you knew I was going to react badly. To oh, the, I knew. To the random cries of Bo Diddley. The second I heard it, I burst out laughing for two reasons. <laughs> One, it was just ridiculous. But two, I knew you were going to have this reaction. <laughs> and we would be having this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be a curmudgeon. I don't want people to think I don't dig the silly stuff. Because I, I do. I like silliness. But this was just... It just was grating. I don't know. I just feel like these are just the things we chalk up to like weird crot rock things that they would just like <laughs> yell out. Yeah. You know, I think about 
Klaus just saying back to Norway. <laughs> yeah. I think over and over again when it like didn't really work in the song. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening yeah. here. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. And in fact, like when I said that in the Mixtape Diaries episode, back to Norway, like I listened to myself saying it. I'm like, well, that's annoying. <laughs> no less annoying than Klaus himself. Yeah. Although I think Klaus got back on the rails and did some, yeah. as far as singing goes, he, yeah, I'll just get it over with. The Bo Diddley thing annoys the hell out of me. There's a long tail to it. So like it happens and like I have to like shake it off. Like I would be running and I'd hear <laughs> the guy go, Bo Diddley. And then I'd run. <laughs> 500 yards and I'd finally let it go. And then like the further down the tail of it, I would go the more. I'd be like, yeah, this, this track is really actually pretty good. Like I love what they're doing here. And then, then they go again, right? And I'm like, it's the reset. And then I'm like, I'm filled back up with annoyance that steadily had to drain. I like the turn it took at the seven minute mark. Maybe you can yeah. put that. Yes, because that was a guitar riff that reminded me of Public Image Limited. There was like a little piece of it that sounded like PIL to me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Carla and Brad talk about <laughs> post-punk. <laughs> it's going to be the offshoot of the offshoot <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this song even supposed to be a commentary on the blues i mean i don't really know or think so right that feels too obvious for what they usually yeah. do like with krautrock right it's usually not so blatant that being said after i have spent a lot of time listening to that buddy guy and junior wells album i kind of i think the way like baseline is throughout the song really gives it kind of a nod to the blues a bit but then the guitar work is stretching and twisting and bending it like out of that repetitive nature that the blues tends to have i don't know if they meant that to be that way but that was my interpretation are they screwing with the blues like cluster was remember yeah maybe They seem more interested in acknowledging the influence, the importance than maybe Cluster was. Yeah, and I mean, screwing with it not in a negative way. I mean, they're very outspoken about the blues musicians and jazz musicians that they were influenced by. But as I was listening to that other album more, I was thinking, hmm. And then I would go back and listen to the song when I ignored the Bo Diddley part. Oh, see? See, you need to, too. No, because it is super distracting. Like, once I got through the comedic, this is absolutely asinine that they're saying this over and over again. It makes no sense. The song underneath it, the track underneath it is great. Yeah. No, I I don't disagree with that. I'd like to know what Connie thought of that. Was Connie saying, ham it up? Or was he (laughs) grimly shaking his head as they both did lead their way 
<laughs> their way through that. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe this is their version of quote free blues, like yeah. free jazz and free rock. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. That's my you know random freedom, interpretation of it. Freedom comes with responsibility. It's my justification <laughs> of it. <laughs> we need responsible blues. <laughs> Spaceship. This is bass rock, duh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Last track reminds me a little of Alpha Centauri, which maybe I got in the brain because I bought it not so long ago. It reminds me of the second side B of the first Ashra Temple album too. Is that Trauma Machina, Dream Machine? Where it kind of gets a, away from the guitars and just, I, I dig it. I like the, there's like this kind of cool 50s sci-fi effects, right? With the, yeah. this is the radio in the credits, right? Oh, yeah. He's calling up radio frequencies. There's a little bit of, like, Morse Cody-type stuff. And then here come the guitars. This kind of roar in, and, and you get the sense of, like, a blast-off or something. This track is great. Tonight, before we started recording, I actually listened to this song first because I think I've been wholly listening to everything like in order. And so sometimes by the time you get to the end, you're a little spent. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to start with Spaceship right now. And I was like, oh, man, every time I listen to this, I hear something different. I feel like it's just Connie Plank doing what he does best. And... I also thought this song was a little more of a sophisticated version of UFO. Yeah. Right. And just probably too, from like a technology standpoint, they were just better engineered using. Yeah. Yeah. I think my tolerance for space rock, the actual Cosmisha rock is expanding, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't know that I could have walked into this 18 months ago. Right. Yeah. Like that's a good point. There's a learning curve and it starts with no way. And then it kind of, mm-hmm. right. That's that's a real good point. I I mean, I would probably say the same thing. I would have been like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine this soundtracking like the end of 2001, the trippy mm-hmm. part of the end of 2001, Space Odyssey. Yeah. Another power of suggestion kind of thing. But at around two minutes in, I was feeling that kind of ramp up of intensity that reminds, it reminded me of the countdown sequence of Starship by the MC5, where they're yelling, 10, and then... Wayne's yeah. like oh, yeah. shouting some yeah. random shit. Nine. Yeah. Love I always love that. And it kinda accelerates.
So you take off and then you float through space for a while and you get that kind of drifting, right? You get the reverb, the atmospherics. A lot of callbacks here for me to electronic meditation, right? The Genesis yeah. Genesis track. I said Manny, I think it's, it's Uli playing the radio. I'm sorry, Uli. It was you. Then we get to the rhythm section, seven minutes in. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so good, so good. But that's exactly it. If you'd asked me some earlier iteration of me, all right, seven minutes from now, like, this is really going to kick in. I'd have been like... Seven minutes to wait for the Yeah. Event. I'll tell you who doesn't. Mark and Bob don't. That's true. They barely and, have three. Yeah. I remember I waited five years for the second Stone Roses album to come out, maybe longer. And when it finally came out, I put it in. And then for like six minutes, there's this random bullshit at the beginning before the song starts. <laughs> Breaking into Heaven. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic song. In fact, I think I even like edited it like i made a version of it where you could just cut that stuff out and you just cut all go. that out yeah so i had no tolerance for that right but like here i'm like seeing what it's trying to do it's placing me somewhere and then when i get that payoff it's not just a payoff it's like i had all this other cool stuff going on and now there's a gear shift and i like the first gear and i like the second and i like the fifth gear a ton it's so good in headphones too it's great in headphones All right, so now we've put hidden behind us. Get it? <laughs> <Ba-dum-bum>. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, Manny could have done that little drum roll so much better than yeah. me. <laughs> so what came after this, right? Well, we usually hit the afterward a little bit, right? Third record, Kangaroo. This was the last LP with what we're calling the classic lineup, right? Which is Manny, Uli, and Axe. Manny says Trepta over-asserted himself and wanted to crowd the other two out of the songwriting. That's not a quote. That's a paraphrase. And, you know, two beats one, they voted him out. And that's why Trepta left. In 1981, Ula told the UK fanzine Face Out. He didn't know why he got kicked out. <laughs> there is a story in future days in the Noi section, because did Trepta pass through Noi at some point? I mean, I think he might have, like, played with them. He didn't record with them. No, you're right. He, I think... Because Michael needed somebody to play bass when they toured because he oh, played bass was, on the records. Yeah. Yeah. So in 72, he played eight gigs with Noi. So that would have been, I guess, touring on, I don't know if that was after Noi 2 or before. Yeah. Before. I think it was after the self-titled before Noi 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was in Faust for a brief time, but yeah. only for some live shows. 
In the noise section, of the, I think it was in the noise section of the Future Days book, Klaus says something similar about Uli being a little over, like this same oh, yeah. theme about his over-assertiveness. <laughs> Klaus echoed in a quote about him. Maybe they like watched Future him Days. with the contact microphone in his mouth and they were like, you're just freaking us <laughs> This out. is freaky and we don't want this anymore. <laughs> This is from a distance of 50 years and right how many thousand miles. I kind of feel like you might have a grievance if you were him. You're like, I'm holding this shit together all the time. I'm the guy who's just playing the baseline while you guys yeah. do whatever the hell you do. You reach great heights and you, right? And, and I'm just plodding along <laughs> right. doing the work. And I wonder if at some point he was like, hey, how about I do a bass solo? And they're like, screw you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know. In the records we're listening to, he's carrying a lot of the, he's carrying a lot of the weight of mm-hmm. the compositions, and then Klaus Stinger, notable, right, always a collaborator, says, <laughs> "Right, I had a hard time getting along with him. He's a little too pushy." <laughs> Look at me, Ula trapped a defender, right? I'll defend Uli to the death. I know. Don't come at me with these allegations, I Carla. I, kind of, I think I kind of read that, like. Not in part of the research for this. And then I, I just remember, I was like, wait a minute. Klaus actually said something very similar. Maybe he's just like the Forrest Gump of Krautrock, right? He's like in all of these bands. Yeah. Just shows up. He's just there. So after Kangaroo was Guru Guru self-titled, Genrick stuck around for that. And I think there was an album after that. Don't call us, we call you. He left and was replaced by, oh gosh. Haoshang the Jadarpur, at which point Manny told the publication Ptolemaic Terrascope, Guru Guru became a bit more jazzy. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, I'm boy, done. did. And it really did. And I like jazz, but I don't like that kind of jazz. It got like new agey. It has yeah. like a new age jazz situation happening, which is kind of what happened to Tangerine Dream, too, in the 80s. And yeah. I'm out. <laughs> this is, seems like the end point of. The acid trip is <laughs> new agey stuff that is hard for children of the 80s to make any sense of or relate to. Yeah, yeah. There's a Rock Palas live performance. I was all excited to turn it on. I could handle about two minutes of it. This was 76. My note <laughs> says, seems to showcase some of the worst instincts and excesses of the decade. And then my note says, Brad, you were out the second the saxophone came in. But it does start to sound like the Sanford and Son theme song. So I like couldn't get past it. I do love that. That's Quincy Jones. I didn't know that was Quincy Jones. I know, Jones which I actually I... kind of like that. But yeah. this was like not in a good way. I put that on one of our mixes of the month. I was like, I searched for Sanford and Son and it brought up Quincy Jones. And I was like, oh, like I wondered why he won the Grammys. <laughs> it's all, it all makes sense. So I hope we haven't alienated half of our listener base. I know. By saying what we said. But let's move forward, right? There's also a TV performance we found on YouTube from 78 with oh some God. real hints of goat in it, it's right? insane. There's so much to unpack in that video. <laughs> <laughs> so Manny is wearing a mask and a tail. Is it like a dinosaur tail? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It sure is. He has like a singlet on and a dinosaur tail. Yeah. He's running in and out from behind the drum kit because I think at this point he is Guru Guru, like... Right? So he's got to be everywhere. Is that an asparagus on his head? I thought maybe it was like celery stalks, but I mean, whatever. Uh, uh, Yeah. 
It's a vegetable. <laughs> yeah. So I went down a rabbit hole thinking about this too. I wonder why, again, this is like the end point of being on acid for so many years is this your shirt comes off, you do this primitive shaman thing. Why is that always what it looks like? Why not like put on wild. a spacesuit? He was like conducting them like a bit, like he as if he yeah. was like a conductor. You end up with a beard know. and a loincloth. You're never in a zoot suit. You're never... <laughs> I love that you wrote the banana suit. Why not a banana suit? But it just seems like that's always the end of the road. Yeah, it was wild. You look like a castaway. Hmm? You look like a castaway. Yeah, it it was wild. And then all of a sudden there's a transition and then the two other guys in the band suddenly have wigs and white beards (laughs) on. Yeah. (laughs) Was bedeutet eigentlich der Name? Guru Guru. I want everyone to go and watch this YouTube video because it is really spectacular. Yeah. But you're right, it is reminiscent of the band Goat and like what their live shows look like. Yeah, that kind of like folk art costuming, Mm -hmm. which... I think they may be coming to the United States soon mm. on this album. I don't know. I know that they have tour dates. and I would like to see them live. It would be interesting. Yeah. So Axe Genrick went on to record an LP called Heidelberg, H-I-G-H. He took demos to Connie Plank in Cologne. He brought in Manny, Mubius, and Rodelius from Cluster, among others, to Cologne to record with him. So connected. And Mm -hmm. what I like to see here too is that maybe they had a fooling out with Uli, but at least these two kept in touch, right? Would help each other out. Others on that record were Helmut Hotler, Peter Volbrandt, and Jan Frieda Volbrandt from Kron. We mentioned Kron earlier. I haven't heard any Kron. Me either. Maybe that's a thing. Treptus said about Genrik's post-Guru Guru career, ah, this cat, he was so strong. There was so much potential that he lost his nerve completely. He went on to some ordinary kind of band and shrugs. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. All right. So not everybody's getting along. (laughs) No. Trepta did a solo project called Space Box, a very aggressive and experimental LP that I heard maybe a little bit of. Died of cancer in 2009. So we miss you, Uli. And then Manny just keeps churning out Guru Guru records. <laughs> 40 and counting. It's crazy. Yeah. So I found this just the other day. In 2004, Axe and Manny got back together, obviously that with a different bass player, Dave Schmidt, to record a record called Psychedelic Monster Jam. There are versions of Stone Inn and Next Time See You at the Dalai Lama. Both of those tracks are from UFO and Electric Junk on it. So that's worth checking out. Carl, is this Prague? Well, I think we've talked about that, that we are definitely circling the drain of Prague. Yeah. Perilously close. Yeah. So close. But I like it. I'm here for it. Yeah. I I mean, I guess that's the thing is that as close as they are to Prague, that's as close as I am to liking Prague. Mm Because I like it. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Call out to listeners. If any of you have met P. Hinton know who P. Hinton might be 
or even if you can confirm our suspicion that there really is no P. Hinton, let us know. It's got to be made up, right? Yeah, right. This does feel Nathaniel Hornblower-ish. <laughs> yeah. If you have a great quote and you want to give it some heft, you make up a person who said it. I love it. Yeah. I, I'm 99% certain that there's no P. Hinton. I Googled the hell out of that. Yeah, Never I did an too. And... Mm-mm. So this is fun. I love this record. I played it a ton over the past few weeks. Yeah, me too. I'm in a kind of equilibrium in terms of UFO versus Hinton. Like There are days when I might want one more than the other. They both give me good vibes and something different. Yeah, now I'm looking for both. Now, I, w- I would like to get both of them on vinyl. So that's my quest now. Yeah. Just spending time with them. These guys rock. They really do. Manny, Axe, and Uli. Great job. Yeah, this was great. All right, so, what's next? So, or do you not want to reveal that yet? <laughs> um, let's do it. Let's lock it down. Okay. I've been ranting at you about Brain Ticket, Cottonwood Hill, the first record. Not sure how much there is in the public record about them, what we'll be able to learn, but it I'm sure we'll dig out enough. <laughs> yeah, we'll dig out enough to talk about. I found that record in Amsterdam, found a reissue of it. It's a gorgeous reissue. I've been playing it the last few days. Love every bit of it. It's out there. There are parts of it that might be as proggy as anything we've heard thus far, and I I love every bit of it. It's definitely psychedelic, but it's definitely very different from anything we've done to date. So I'm interested in what you think about it. Yeah, I haven't. I've listened to it on and off, but not in the way that I listen to the records when we go to do these. So I'm excited to listen to it a little more. I need to do the, just the, the lie down in bed, right? Just take it all in sensory yeah. deprivation, right? Nothing yeah, distracting yeah. me. Yeah. That's my next step. So um, we'll have that for you. I don't know. In the near to medium oh, term. Sometime soon. <laughs> You'll have it when you have it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. In the meantime, I'm Carla. And I'm Brad. And we just talked about Krat Rock. <laughs>